Where are you starting from as a leader? Do you know your why? On this episode, Simon Sinek tells us why the why is so critical. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 223. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And I'm really thrilled that you have joined me for today's show. I have a really special guest with me today. Many of you will recognize his name. Uh, For some of you, you may be getting introduced to him for the first time. But over the last six to nine months, I've probably received more requests to interview this person from our audience than anyone else. And I'm really thrilled to be able to welcome Simon Sinek to the show. Simon is an unshakable optimist. He teaches leaders and organizations how to inspire people. And he has a bold goal to help build a world in which the vast majority of people go home every day feeling fulfilled by their work. And Simon's leading of movement to inspire people to do the things that inspire them. And he's the author of two books, uh, which you may recognize, the global bestseller, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, and also his newest book, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and others don't. And he is best known for popularizing the concept of why and for the TED Talk that he gave on the subject. And it has become the second most watched TED Talk of all time on TED.com. Simon, I'm so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Thanks for having me. Well, forgive me borrowing the title of your first book, but let's start with why. Where did this concept come from, and why is why is why so important to how leaders frame what they're doing in organizations? Well, it gives everything context, right? It gives everything a sense of purpose. It gives everything a sense of meaning. Without that sense of context or purpose, we end up just working for the result. We end up just working for the money, right? And at the end of the day, as much as money is needed to make the company grow and go, of course, it, it doesn't fulfill us. Nobody, nobody imagines having a tombstone with the last number in their bank account printed upon it. You know, we, we imagine having a tombstone with, with what we did for others. You know, he gave, she cared, etc. And so ironically, or not so ironically, the companies and the leaders with a sense of purpose, with a sense of cause, who know their why, actually tend to be the most successful companies as well. So it's the why that's really the difference maker more so than the, the bank account, the, 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 maybe the strategy, the market research, all the other things that a lot of times we tend to think of first when we're thinking about business strategy. Right, exactly. I mean, it, like I talk about starting with why. It's not, it's not the end all be all, but it's a starting place to know why you do something, to know why you started the company in the first place. Most companies, the, the successful ones, weren't founded because some somebody read a magazine article and thought there was a market opportunity. The, the best companies were founded on an idea or an experience or a problem that somebody personally or suffered them or somebody close to them personally suffered and the solution they found became their company. You know, those tend to be the best companies because they're filled with passion and purpose and cause because somebody is, is viscerally committed to that because they know that it matters as opposed to um, just the pursuit of some, uh, some market opportunity. 
What's more is it's very hard to inspire and attract people to give their blood, sweat, and tears so that you can pursue some market opportunity. You have to pay for that, and, and that gets expensive after a while. Yeah, and I've heard you speak about market research and how a lot of companies really overuse market research or even that, whether or not market research is really a place even organizations should be spending time. Why, why is that problematic for how organizations approach this question? It, it, has a, it has a purpose at a tactical level. Companies should not be uh, deciding their purpose or their cause based on market research. That's like a politician deciding what their vision is based on poll numbers. And we all know how upsetting that is. We want to know what they actually, actually believe. We want to know what their actual vision is. And if we align with their vision, we will follow them. But if they just look at polls, we know that they're not really committed to anything, and it's a very selfish pursuit. Companies are the same. Companies are the same. I always get a kick out of the fact that small companies with no resources who can't afford to do market research are the ones that come up with all the ideas. And big companies with all the resources and all the money don't come up with any of the ideas, and they do all the market research. That means there's something missing there. Yeah. I can't believe that it's all because it's bad research. That can't be the case. It's because maybe they're misusing the research. You know, you can re use research absolutely, like I said, at a tactical level, but at a, at a vision level, at a purpose level, at a cause level, it just has no application whatsoever. That's like asking your friends who they think you should be so that, you'll be, so that they'll be friends with you. Mm. That's madness. They'll tell you, be yourself, you know? Yeah, and I love the analogy for the politicians. That's that's, that's fabulous. Uh, you know, I, I'm curious too about you use the word trust a lot in your work, and I've heard you speak about it and write about it. And you say trust is all about saying and doing what you actually believe. Mm -hmm. And yet, my sense is for many organizations, and I would even dare say a lot of leaders, that's really hard for a lot of us. Why is it that that's so hard for us? We have this false belief that we have to appear as perfect or in control or know all the answers. Um, we have to appear, we fear that we have to appear that, that everybody will agree with us, right? Which is why, going back to the previous question, which is why companies do excessive amounts of market research before they say anything, which is why um, PR departments in companies spin something you know, mm. or put the best light on it. Uh, and it's why we don't trust politicians who use polls to decide things. At the end of the day, um, it's, it's, it's hard because it requires risk. This is what vulnerability is. Vulnerability is being honest about what we know, what we don't know. Vulnerability is putting a vision out there, not really 100% sure if other people share our vision. And all of that is very risky and very scary to uh, a species that so much of our behavior is is governed by our desire to feel safe. Mm. And so with the people you work with, Simon, and, and and I know you've had a lot of success in both your, you, you talk about both in your friends and your interpersonal relationships, but also in businesses and organizations you've worked with, of helping people to make that shift. What is it that you see that starts to get people to bridge that gap and to, if not be comfortable with it, at least be willing to have the courage to take that step. You know that old joke, um, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> uh, it's the same thing, which is the first step to becoming that leader that we wish we had is you have to actually want to be the leader. In the United States Marine Corps, if you enlist for the Marine Corps, 
you will be giving four to six years of your life in your contract. And when you get to boot camp and it's horrible, you can't change your mind. You're in. That's it. You've committed. There's no getting out of the contract, right? Right. However, if you take the officer route, if you want a commission and you go the officer route, though you sign a contract, your only requirement is to give them four out of a 10-week program. If you at uh, you only have to do four weeks. After four weeks of boot camp, if you decide you want out of the Marine Corps, they will let you out, no problems, and they'll let you out of their contract. And the reason they do that is because the Marines don't want anyone in a leadership position who doesn't want to be a leader. They know that to be a leader, you have to want to be a leader. Mm. And so really, it's, it's, it's that choice first that this is really important, I really want to do this, has to come before everything else. And that's the first step of courage is the desire to actually want to do it. Is that something that we learn or is it something that we have to align and find the right thing for us that we feel passionate about? Because I, I get the sense sometimes that sometimes people feel like they don't have that passion, they don't have that desire. And so what, where do people go who run into that, that obstacle? Well, I mean, you can absolutely go find your why. I mean, I learn mine and then I help my friends learn theirs. And then my amazing team took the, 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 the process that I used and turned it into the Why Discovery course, which, which we have on our website, startwithwhy.com, to help anybody who wants to go on that journey. It's absolutely learnable. It shouldn't be something random. You know, we've all had experiences where we're, quote unquote, in the flow or whatever you want to call it, you know, where everything we touch turns to gold. The problem is it, it's somewhat of a random experience. Once you learn your why, the opportunity to put yourself in that space where you naturally thrive more often dramatically, dramatically increases. And the reason is because you have a filter and you can more easily see the right things to do, the wrong things to do, where you will naturally thrive and where you will naturally struggle. And if you make those decisions to, to put yourself in a position of weakness, it's usually for a much, a very, very good reason. And you're doing it knowingly as opposed mm -hmm. to finding yourself in it and then being upset about it. But more importantly is you just, you're better able to make decisions that align with you. Um, so I'll give you, I'll give you an example, which is me, right? So my story is much like anybody else's. Um, I owned a small business and, you know, people gave me great advice about what I should and shouldn't do. And I looked at them and they had had success with the, the advice that they were giving me, but it wouldn't always work for me, right? So it made me feel stupid and insecure and like I couldn't do this. But once I learned my why to inspire people to do the things that inspire them, so together we can change our world, that's why I do what I do. When people would give me advice, I would run it through that filter, you know? And if it aligned with my belief, with my cause, with my purpose, I would take the advice. And if it didn't, I would thank them and I, and I would move on. And the result was I got better advice, not because the advice was better, it's because I knew which advice to follow. Oh, or even partnerships nice. or hiring decisions. I got much, much better at making partnership decisions or, or, or which vendors I should work with because I first ran them through the filter of do we share the same values and beliefs? Do you share my cause? And those who do, we work together with blood, sweat, and tears. And those who don't, they're working for my money, yeah. right? Yep. Uh, if they're a vendor. So really it's about aligning purpose and creating strong human relationships and learning your why just gives you a massive advantage in decision-making and, and any kind of sort of assessment and discernment. I know how much this really does in, in some ways start with us because we have to figure, like you said, that, that lens of figuring out what's the why and running everything through that. I love that analogy, by the way, of, of how do you, uh, how you use that to make decisions and to accept feedback. 
and or set it aside. Tell me about more about fulfillment, because I, I think one of the things that, uh, and I've heard you speak critically of the self, self-help industry, as it's called, of it's very much a lot of times focused on, you know, on me, 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 how do I get better? And right. I know you've, you've really made the distinction of fulfillment doesn't really come from how do you make yourself better? It's really of looking at things from the other's perspective. So where does, where does this cross the line of like, how do I figure out my why, but then also how do I, how do I find potentially that fulfillment? So uh, fulfillment comes from service to others. That's where it comes from, right? That's why as many toys, as money as you may collect, you may, you may feel like you're on the top of the world, but do you really feel fulfilled by it all? And the answer is no. Fulfillment comes from the strong relationships that we form right? And it comes from service to, to others. Like the sacrifice of raising a child. You know, you don't get to get the car that you want. You have to buy a minivan and you don't get to take the kind of vacations you want and you have to sacrifice sleep. And sometimes there are all kinds of other sacrifices, you know, that we make to raise a child. So why is it worth having children? It seems like a total, totally not worth it. Well, it's worth it when we see our investment pay off and we see our five-year-old share with our four-year-old. When we see our kid perform in the school play or graduate school or get their first boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, get married or get a job or get a promotion. And all of a sudden it's all worth it, you know? Yeah. And so this is, this is what leadership is. It's the same thing. It's, it's the joy of leadership comes from seeing those around us thrive. The reason I'm critical of the self-help industry is because the reason it's a self-fulfilling industry is because it doesn't work. Because when all you pursue is things for yourself, it makes you want to do it more. It's a growing industry. That doesn't make sense, right? It should be a declining industry if it were working because I found happiness and I don't need to buy any more products. But at the end of the day, the people who are most heavily engaged in the self-help uh, uh, industry buy multiple, multiple, multiple products. Why is that, right? It's because when we make it about ourselves, it never really works. When we make it about others, it really does feel amazing. The greatest joy a leader can have, and this is inside a company as well, is not just winning the big client. That's exciting. Or having a good year. That's, that's really exciting. But that excitement wears off. Nobody walks around with a sense of fulfillment for the big client they won a year ago. That's a short-term, that's, short that's happiness. That's, that, that may be, a, but that's not deep fulfillment, right? Deep fulfillment inside our companies comes from seeing our people solve a problem that was considered unsolvable. Mm. It, uh, uh, fulfillment comes from seeing our people grow and accomplish more than even they thought they were uh, capable of. Fulfillment comes from seeing the confidence of our people expand and our people volunteering to take on more and taking care of each other. And then that's when we sit back and say, I've built a really good company. And here's the amazing thing. It's also really doing well financially because the people who work here are so committed to the company so committed to my vision because they know that I'm committed to them as human beings. That's fulfillment. And I, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned parenting as part of that. I heard you talk about that in a talk. It might have even been one of the TED Talks. And I've been thinking about that a lot. We have small children at home too, Simon. And I, I was interested in hearing you share about there are organizations that have made the decision to treat the commitment they make to their employees much like parents commit to their children and that if something goes wrong with a child or you have a run into an obstacle you figure it out as a parent you have made that commitment and Correct. 
that there are businesses now and organizations and some leaders who have also made similar commitments. And I was, I was wondering if you could share a bit about just maybe one of the examples or, or how that's played out and, and, and why that really speaks to what you're talking about. Sure. And it's true. Bob Chapman, who's the CEO of a company called Barry Waymiller, it's a good company, Midwest-based, good old-fashioned American manufacturing. And in 2008, they were hit very, very hard by the recession, and they lost 30% of their business. So, of course, the board gets together and says, we need to have layoffs. The management gets together and says, we need to have layoffs. But Bob Chapman refused, because Bob doesn't believe in head counts. Bob believes in heart counts. And Bob believes that you treat people... Um, you devote to your people like you devote to your family, that every single person in his company is someone, someone, someone's daughter, someone's son and someone's daughter, and he has a responsibility to them, right, to take care of them. And so they made a decision not to have layoffs, but instead they had a furlough program where every employee had to take four weeks of unpaid vacation. They could take it whenever they wanted, and they didn't have to take it consecutively. But everybody had to do it from secretary to CEO. But it was how Bob announced the program that was so powerful. He said, it's better we should all suffer a little than any of us should have to suffer a lot. And morale went up, right? Think about that. In hard times, morale went up. More importantly, when the, leadership, when the people saw that the leadership was willing to sacrifice the numbers to take care of them, they started sacrificing to take care of each other. This was not part of the program. And what they started to see, that people would, who could afford it more would trade with people who could afford it less. So somebody would take five or six weeks so that somebody else only had to take two or three weeks. Oh, wow. That wasn't part of the program. That was organic, right? Whereas when you have a system of layoffs to balance the books, when you announce to your people, we are going to use your lives and your livelihood to balance the books this year, nobody sacrifices for each other. If anything, they hunker down or stab each other in the back. Mm. Leaders set the environment. And when leaders care for their people, like... A parent cares for their child. If your kid has a bad, uh, a bad report card, you don't put the kid up for adoption. You get the kid a tutor. If somebody has performance issues at the company, you don't fire them. You coach them. Empathy is king, right? What we usually do is we walk into someone's office and we say, you know, your numbers are down, and this is the third time we've had this conversation, and you really need to get your numbers up next quarter, otherwise I don't know what's going to happen, right? That's how, how, how inspired, how hard do you think that person's going to work with that fear over their head versus walking into someone's office and saying, hey, your numbers are down for the third quarter in a row. This is the third time we've had this talk. Is everything okay? Are you all right? Right? And all of a sudden you'll find that there's usually a human problem underlying, maybe issues at home or somebody's in a position where they don't know the, how to do the job or they're having a medical problem, but they're not gonna tell you that because we don't provide environments inside our companies that people feel safe to share any of that stuff because we've, we, we, too many companies produce cultures of fear and anxiety rather than empathy and care and trust and cooperation. And the joke is, this is why my work is, I'm astounded that I have a career, you know? There should be no demand for me or my work. I talk about trust and cooperation. There should be no demand for this. It's astounding to me that, that leaders of companies actively make decisions that destroy trust and cooperation inside their companies. And they do it because they say things to me like, well, Simon, I had to do layoffs this year. I had no choice. Really? Really? You had no, no choice? 
none, no, no choices. What they mean is I couldn't consider of an, a, another option. I, I, I didn't ask anyone for help. I never engaged the people who might suffer and say, guys, this is the situation I, I face. I don't know of any other option. What are your ideas? They don't read the books or listen to the talks of folks like me to give, that, uh, uh, that folks like I give, offering options. What they say is, I cannot think of anything other than layoffs, and so I chose layoffs. But when people say I had no choice, it blows my mind. They are making active choices to destroy trust and cooperation inside their companies. Hey, I think it's... Um, it, it, that it's, was a good soapbox, wasn't it? it was, it's fabulous. I, you know, I, I, reson- I really resonate with what you say, too, of <laughs> like, why is, like, why are people following the concept because in some ways it seems so obvious. I've had that thought oftentimes with the, the the coaching for leader show and the community. And in fact, Simon, when I first saw your book, and I was like, "Well, that seems kind of obvious." Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the reasons I, I hadn't looked at it originally. Is um, is like okay, that that's a that's a simple concept. That's Everyone gets right? that. Why doesn't everybody do it? Yeah. And here's the reason. Here's the reason. Because I can't tell you when the payoff will happen. Right. It's like, what if I told you the importance of exercise? Right. And you go to the gym and you come home and you look in the mirror and you see nothing. And you go to the gym the next day and you come home and you look in the mirror and you will see nothing. In fact, you're in pain. So empirically, empirically you say, I don't see any benefit from this exercise, this hard work, and I'm in pain. I'm going to abandon it, right? There's an element of belief and faith that exercise is actually the right thing to do even though you don't know exactly when it's going to work. Hey, Simon, when will exercise benefit me? I don't know. Five weeks, seven weeks, I don't know. But if you've been doing the same thing for six months and you see no results, you're probably doing something wrong. Mm. Leadership is the same. And the reason people don't choose to lead properly is because they, because I cannot tell you when you will see the results. You can see the results immediately on the books at the end of the year if you use layoffs. Now, you're doing unbelievable amounts of other deleterious uh things to your company, but you get the short-term burst, the short-term rush, the short-term thrill that you did something right, even though you did something, even though over the long term you did something terribly wrong, right? And that's the point. Leadership is a process and it requires commitment. And sometimes the stress does go up in the short term, but the long-term benefits are dramatic if you believe in something called leadership, if you believe in something called exercise, if you believe in something called nursing or fostering relationships, right? But what we've chosen is a system of instant gratification yeah. because we can see the results. No other reason. That's it. I can see and count the results immediately and I can ignore the fact that I'm doing long-term damage. It's like the thrill of eating cheeseburgers and eating chocolate cake and then 20 years later, you're a diabetic. Oh, I wish I didn't eat so many cheeseburgers. Same thing. Well, it was, the joy uh, and thrill of that cheesecake and that and that. Chocolate cake is so so good. We don't think of the becoming a diabetic ten or twenty years later. Yeah, yeah, and you know uh, this relates, I think, to what you just said. Uh, I was noticing, I was looking at your website, I was noticing some of the resources there, and there's a there's a quote on one of the the downloads you've got on on one of your books from you that says the only way to find out if it will work is simple: do it. Correct. This actually, um, I, I reached out to a couple of folks who are in our Coaching for Leaders Mastermind community and uh, who are fans of yours, Simon, and, and asked them, you know, what are some of the things I should ask you? And um, both uh, both of the people I heard back from are uh, are fans of your work. And uh, Chris actually emailed me, and it actually relates to what we were just talking about. And he said, I, I, he's listened to your book, Why, Eater, Why Leaders Eat Last. 
and he finds that you provide a lot of examples of what what you call the circle of safety. And mm-hmm. he says your philosophy and ideas are really rational, but do you have the data to support that getting buy-in on the philosophy is actually good for business by reducing costs or increasing profits? And that kind of gets to what we were just talking about. But I'm wondering, how do you... Because this is, of course, what we always hear from people in organizations when we're talking about some of these things that are that are harder to measure is how does it affect the bottom line? How do you have that conversation with people about this concept? There's two answers. What's the ROI of your mother? Right? Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this, right? What's the ROI of your mother? You know, how do you calculate the value of good parenting? How do you do that? What's the number you would put to that? It's very hard to do, but you can always tell a good parent. You can always tell by looking at the kids, a good parent, right? In other words, in other words, a company runs better. They make movies about bad leaders, people who bark orders, and when everything goes wrong, they come in and save the day. They don't make movies about good leaders, like Marshall or Bradley, right? Because, quite frankly, their, their organizations are pretty boring, because you show up and everything just works, and everybody just gets along. In other words, it just doesn't stand out. Just, they just go. But over the course of time, their results are profoundly better than their competition. So there absolutely are calculable ways to demonstrate there is an ROI calculation and there is data on this, but it's not necessarily on a quarter to quarter basis. It's absolutely on, on uh, a more long-term gauge. You know, if you look at uh, GE versus Costco, a company that we hailed for, uh, who knows what that is, good leadership, but a company who embraced shareholder supremacy, layoffs, and all of these things, rank and yank, all of these terribly destructive long-term um, uh, leadership philosophies that Jack Welch pioneered. And if you look at their short-term gains, it's fantastic. Huge highs, you know? Wall Street regularly criticized companies like Costco, who who believed in investing in their customers and their employees. In fact, there's a Deutsche Bank analyst who actually said, quote, when will Costco stop prioritizing their employees and their customers and start worrying about their shareholders because their stock was flat, right? Well, flash forward over the course of time, Right? If you invested a dollar in GE when Costco went public in December of 1984, you, to this day, you would have made uh, 600% on your money. Mm. If you invested a dollar in the S&P 500 that same year, you would have made 600% on your money. If you invested a dollar in Costco, you would have made 1,200% on your money. Wow. GE is a roller coaster of highs and lows, highs and lows, highs and lows, highs and lows, where Costco is this steady, beautiful increase, incline, right? GE needed a $300 billion bailout after 2008. You want to know why? Not a stable company. Costco needed nothing, right? The point is, in the short term, yes, everything that I I rail against is fine for the short term. If you want long-term stability, if you want long-term success, success, if you want something that lasts, if you want something that, that outdoes your competition year after year after year, not just one year, that only comes with a commitment to leadership, and the results are easily evident over time. Not to mention the fact that you don't have to hire and fire barely ever because people who, who work for you are devoted and committed. So you don't have the churn, the expense of the churn. You don't have the expense of having to hire everybody back that you laid off as a consultant. You don't have to have all the retraining and productivity issues because you have to hire new people and retrain. You don't have the destruction to the culture. You get people's better ideas 
because people aren't walking around afraid. They're walking around committed to seeing that your company and your cause advance and do better than everybody else. You cannot have an innovative company without good leadership mm. because innovation is about ideas and risk and trying new things. No one commits new ideas or takes a risk if they have fear that there's going to be sacrifices if money's lost or if the results aren't there, right? If everything's quarterly, quarterly analyzed or annually an annualized, then no one gives you your best, their best ideas, right? I, the best ideas it. come from people who share in cause and feel safe in the environment that they're committed to. And that, when so people who ask for ROI in the short term, I may or may not be able to give you some examples. Over the long term, I can give you thousands. I love it. Great examples. And you know, this this probably this next question goes right along with it. In fact, I might already know your answer, but uh, Mike, who's part of our mastermind too, says, uh, how do you make these ideas part of the operating culture of the organization? Good leadership. That's exactly that's, what that's I expected what you to say. <laughs> that's what leaders are supposed to be doing. Yeah. Leaders are not responsible for the numbers. Leaders are responsible for the people who are responsible for the numbers. You, we, we go through this transition, right? Well, hopefully we go through this transition. When we're junior, the only thing we have to be responsible for is doing our jobs. And you do a good job. That's all you're responsible for. Some people get advanced degrees on how to do that job. They become accountants or engineers or doctors. There's, that's advanced training on how to do a job. That's what that is, right? And all you have to do be, is be good at your job. And the company gives you tons of training how to do your job. They'll teach you how to work the machine or use the software. They'll teach you how to sell. They'll teach you about the product. Lots of training for junior people how to do the job. And then go do the job. And if you're good at your job, they'll promote you. And if you're really good at your job, they'll promote you again. And eventually, you'll get promoted to a position where you're responsible for the people who do the job you used to do. But nobody teaches us how to do that. And that's why we get managers and not leaders. But that's like putting someone in front of a machine and demanding results, but not showing somebody how to use the machine. So we get people who manage our work and manage our people because they actually do know how to do the job better because that's what got them promoted. We need to teach people how to lead. It's a process. As you said, leaders aren't born, they're made. We have to teach them how to do it so they can go through this transition where they have to learn that they are no longer responsible for the job. They're responsible for the people who are doing the job. They're no longer responsible for the results. They're responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. There's not a CEO on the planet. There's not a senior executive on the planet responsible for the customer. They haven't talked to the customer in 10 years. They're responsible for the people who are responsible for the customer. And when they get their job right, meaning when they lead instead of manage, what they get is people who are devoted and committed to the results, the customer, and the numbers because they feel that somebody's committed and devoted to them. If, however, we commit ourselves to the numbers, then everybody else is worried about themselves and not wanting to stand out and not wanting to make a fool of themselves and not wanting to lose money because it's a culture of fear. And I suspect in there we have also the answer to why people listen to this show, why so many people have followed you, Simon, and, and some of these concepts that um, you know seem so so simple, not necessarily easy, uh, is because we don't do a great job in many organizations of doing that. And and that's why I'm so grateful for the work you're doing, the passion, the enthusiasm you bring in your talks and this interview. Uh, so thanks for being a great inspiration of that and also giving people the confidence to do that. And I, I, I'd, love you to t uh, I'd love you to take a moment to tell people about the Why Discovery course 
and the books and just for those who really have been inspired by this conversation as I have and want to do more, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Well, as you said, I wrote a couple of books. One's called Start With Why, which is all about the existence of this thing called purpose, cause, or belief, why it's important, and giving a biological underpinning that proves the case for the for this sense of uh, this thing called the why that we all need to have to be to be at our best, our natural best, and to attract people who believe what we believe. And then I wrote another book called uh, Leaders Eat Last, which is all about why t- some teams come together and why some teams don't, where trust comes from, where cooperation comes from. Again, a biological and anthropological underpinning. So it's not just it's not just aphorisms and 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 flightiness and you know ooey gooey language. It's 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 based in science. And it makes a, a very strong case for what a culture needs to be and how to lead so that trust and cooperation naturally thrive versus uh, are, are naturally uh, impeded, which bad leadership will do. Um, uh, we have a website with lots of resources, startwithwhy.com, same title as the book, uh, as the first book. And for those who want to learn their why, um, we have a why discovery course, which uh, I encourage people to do with somebody else. It's, it's way more powerful to do it with somebody. You could do it by yourself, but... Um, but we specifically built it um, so that somebody else can help you if you want that as well. I'm very proud of that course. Uh, it's it's really valuable. Yeah, it looks really cool online. I haven't taken the course yet myself, but I just I noticed the element of doing it with others and community that's yeah. involved in it. I think that's really cool. Um, you know, it, leadership can be really lonely, and um, and one of the things that you know is part of my why is helping leaders build community. And so, um, Simon, I just really appreciate you providing so many resources to people, the inspiration, the time. I mean, I know how much time goes into giving a great presentation and, and doing something like a TED Talk. So thanks for putting all that together and inspiring people and being a, a, a voice for reason and inspiration out there. I'm uh, really grateful for it. It's an honor to serve the cause. Simon Sinek is the author of Start With Why and also Leaders Eat Last, both bestsellers. Check them out. Thanks so much, Simon. I appreciate it. Thanks very, very much. Oh, man, there's so much I could say about this conversation with Simon. The thing that I'm left with, though, is how I could have listened to him for another hour or two talk about this topic and not just because I'm interested in the topic, which of course I am, as many of you are, but because he's so passionate about it. Can you tell in his voice, in his energy, in his examples? I might even give him any of these questions in advance. We'd never talked before today. And yet, the energy level that he brings, the enthusiasm for what he's talking about, you can tell he knows his why and he knows his life's work. And so my challenge for each of us is to do some work to identify our why. And Simon's books, his TED Talks, and the course he talked about are excellent avenues for you to begin that path and begin that journey. So I certainly would encourage you to check out those resources. And in addition, I'd also encourage you to keep listening to this show. I, I, I just cannot resonate more with what Simon said is that it's, it's so much the case in so many organizations and industries. We do such a great job of teaching people how to use the software and to run the machines and use the technology and manage the projects effectively. And yet we are just as a, as a business world, and in an organizational world, we fall so short on this 
this process, and it really is a process, it's a lifelong pursuit of leadership development, of helping all of us to lead more effectively. I've had great resources in my career over the years for leadership development, and I still find myself ill-equipped in many situations of wanting more, of wanting more that I can bring to the table to be the kind of leader that Simon has articulated here on this conversation. And so if you find yourself struggling with that too, and ill-equipped sometimes on how to take the next step, my message for you is you are not alone and you have found your people on the show. And this show is very much centered on continuing that conversation each week to give us all the inspiration, the models, the tools, the stories, the examples that will help you to do that because in a lot of places we don't do that as well as we could. And so I hope you'll join me in that journey and those obstacles and those struggles and the joys and all the things that come along with that in leading. And it is a journey uh, for all of us. And I am uh, really honored to be on the journey along with you. And I'm honored that you have taken this show as part of your leadership development and part of your process for discovering that why. And I hope that you'll continue listening. If this is the first time you're checking out the show, you can subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to or iTunes or Stitcher. And of course, I always welcome your comments, especially for the Q&A shows that come every first Monday of the month. The next one's going to be episode 225. And if you have a question that you'd like to have considered for that show, or maybe have a comment on this show, go ahead and go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And while you're online, please take a moment to join my weekly leadership guide if you don't already receive it. The leadership guide comes to your inbox every Wednesday and includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, books, Articles that will support your development between the shows. I think I said articles twice there, but that's okay. There's always uh, there's always great articles out there every week, and a few minutes of reading things that are online will really help you. And I spend a lot of time each week online looking for things that I think will be helpful to this community, and I often include those in the weekly updates. And it also includes links to the weekly show notes. So if you, like me, listen on the go and you want to come back and look for some of the quotes of the things that Simon said and, and all of our guests say on uh, past and future episodes, Andrew's doing a beautiful job of putting those together in the show notes every week. And we send those out. So that's a great way to come back to all the resources that are mentioned on every show. And as a bonus, when you join the weekly leadership guide, you're going to get immediate access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries from me on the value of each one of those books. It's an 11-page guide and also comes with a nine-minute video. So take a moment to check that out at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe, and you will get access to all of that, plus the leadership guide every Wednesday from that point forward. And finally, this week, a huge thank you to John Lockhorst here in the United States for the kind review you left on iTunes. John, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you taking a moment to share something on iTunes about the show. And if you've been listening for a bit, if the show's been helpful to you, the one thing you can do that will be so helpful to me and the rest of the Coaching for Leaders community is to take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Go to Coaching for Leaders dot com slash iTunes. Thanks in advance if you choose to do that. It really does help so many more people 
find the show, as many people do, uh, just searching online on iTunes. So thanks so much for that. And I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to talking to you next Monday. Take care.